On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. Lennon Flowers and the Reverend Jennifer Bailey embody what I experience as a particular wisdom of millennials. They've each founded non-traditional organizations that are attending to human needs the world they were born into did not know what to do with. Lennon, whose mother died when she was in college, has helped create a national movement for opening up about grief and loss in the lives of young people over shared meals. Jen is a celebrated innovator at the intersection of, among other things, theology, community organizing, spiritual sustainability, and intergenerational accompaniment. Together, they've also made over 1,500 people's suppers happen across the political chasms of the last few years. In the words they use, the practices they cultivate, the way they think, they issue an invitation to something different from safe space, brave space. We don't need to confuse safe spaces with comfortable spaces. And we don't have to understand everything about each other in order to be present with one another. I think that we like have mistaken empathy you know, as walking um, in someone else's shoes. Let us be clear, you can't. But what we can do is witness and accompany. If we're going to do the work of what it means to grow into being fully human, to grow into the promise of America, to grow into to be in process, yeah. then we have to be teachable, we have to be moldable, we have to be willing to engage one another and be wrong sometimes. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Reverend Jennifer Bailey is founder and leader of the Faith Matters Network. Lennon Flowers is co-founder of The Dinner Party. And they are co-founders of the People's Supper Initiative. We spoke together in the historic amphitheater of the Chautauqua Institution as part of its 2019 summer season. Jen, I'd love to start with you about hearing um, how you would begin to describe the spiritual or religious background of your childhood. Wow. Thank you, Krista. As a reverend, you might, might infer right, that, that it's rooted <laughs> in the church and... For me, when I think about the spiritual background of my childhood growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, and through the 2000s, it's very connected to place, and in particular, the place that is my hometown, Quincy, Illinois, a town of about 40,000 people right across the river from Hannibal, Missouri. Yeah. That is, when I was growing up, 90% white and 10% all others. And for me, the one place that I could find a sense of belonging, the one space in my life where I was told that I was beloved just because of who I was, was at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church on the corner of 9th and Oak Street. Right. And it was there where I was, um, I was taught in the church kitchen by the women of the church, right? that, that space that is largely our domain. Um, it was in that space that Sister Weldon told me when I was seven years old that I would be a preacher girl one day. Uh, and those words of affirmation, that affirmation that I was indeed beloved in the eyesight of God, 
that my brownness was something to be honored, yeah. that God delighted in me, really happened in those, those kitchen spaces mm. of the church. Mm. You've also written beautifully about learning to raise your voice at your grandmother's table. So you said over pots of greens and black-eyed peas and games of spades, and that there's a truth-telling you learned there. Yes, so I, I say I had two grandmas, one of whom had the key to her church and when her pastor did not, and the other one, um, <laughs> uh, then there was my grandma Vera, who was not a churchgoer. Um, it was spades and bid whisk on the south side of Chicago. Oh, so that was her table. That was her table, uh -huh. um, where I learned about a particular type of truth-telling that happens after one to two Budweiser's, right? Um, <laughs> But in that truth-telling um, was sacred space. And it wasn't the same sacred space that I experienced in the church kitchen. It was a sacred space that allowed for a, a type of dissemination of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And I think those two experiences um, with my grandmothers and mm -hmm. in the church kitchen and at my grandmother's kitchen table um, really informs both my theology and um, what it means to be a black woman in today's United States. Yeah. Um, Lennon, I know less about your story. How would you begin to describe the religious or spiritual background of your childhood? Yeah, um, I think the spiritual background for me is an easier one to land on. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I kind of grew up between worlds. Um, so one, um, you know, was a very middle-class world that, uh, from which my mom entered after an escape from one of endemic poverty um, in Eastern North Carolina. Um, and it was the world of my extended family in tobacco country. And I grew up surrounded and vacillating between spaces and people who lived in very, very different conditions. And I think one of the things that I took away from that um, and that my mom was really adamant that I do was to never ever confuse a person's capacity with their circumstances mm. and to be able to seek out and look for capacity um, and to recognize, you know, my mom was extremely private in her own religious views um, to the point that, you know, when she died, I, I still don't know definitively what she believed but you know, one of her favorite phrases was, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Hmm. And the serenity prayer was taught to me at an extremely early age. And I think the second piece that, um, you know, she was, the second teaching from that experience was, you know, she didn't romanticize poverty. And I think, you know, the people who tend to are the ones who've never known it. But neither did she romanticize wealth. And for her, um, what was supremely important as a currency that mattered was the use of your voice. You know, she grew up in circumstances that can make you feel very, very small. And so she was really um, clear for my brother and me um, that we could be big and that what mattered in this life wasn't anything attached to the money that we earned um, or anything like that, but yeah. doing something that mattered and mattered to us. And there's so much resonance. This is such a, an unusual entry point to talking about this moment we inhabit in civic and civilizational terms. There's so much resonance with 
that experience and those insights and how do we live together now and how do we move forward into new realities? And um, so the, the, the People's Supper started after the 2016 election and I know that that was a really cathartic experience for the two of you. And something I appreciate so much about the way you speak about it and also have acted on that catharsis is not to turn it into a partisan battle. It is to address it at this human level of what we know about being human and honoring that and ennobling that. Jen, I first met you at a gathering of mostly millennials a couple of months, I think maybe November 2016, and I think you were supposed to give a talk or maybe like a TED-like TED talk, and you instead delivered a sermon, which was amazing. <laughs> And um, I think I invited you to write this piece for the On Being space about what you'd said. And I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, I am a black woman ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I am the breathing legacy of, Ameri of one of America's great original sins, the child of people stolen from the West African coast to labor in the fields of Florida, Georgia, and Arkansas. This is you after the election. I folded into myself, my arms wrapped tightly around my knees and found their rest on my heaving chest. Rocking back and forth on the cool linoleum floor, I finally uttered the only words that I could find. I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. You reminded me in that moment that the meaning of the word um, apocalypse in the biblical Greek is not a catastrophe to end all catastrophes. The meaning of that word is an uncovering. And you also wrote this, regardless of where you fall on the ideological spectrum or how you cast your vote, one thing is exceedingly clear, that that presidential cycle uncovered and left exposed a rupture at the very heart of our democracy. So, the, t the two of you, I guess, started talking just as you started the dinner party with um, uh, another friendship, which I think is also a theme in terms of how you all and your generation is approaching social change. What, what's resonating now, hearing those words back is like, I said that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's also... Um, Part of the context for that moment for me in November of 2016 is that I'd lost my mom on Mother's Day Eve 2016 after a 14-year battle with cancer. And what I felt when I was rocking back and forth on that floor and saying, I don't feel safe, I don't feel safe, was her presence come over me and say, we, we've never been safe. And it was a reminder for me that as someone who grew up for, in her case, she was part of the first class to integrate her high school in Cairo, Illinois in 1968, that safety is an illusion that's only afforded to a few people. And so the choice, which my friend Mickey um, reminds me of, is some of us have to be brave. And when I reflect back on that moment. And when I reflect back the next week, I was driving from 
Nashville, Tennessee, where I lived, to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I drove through my grandmother's hometown of Hughes, Arkansas, um, the one that, that was playing bid with. Um, I remembered stories, and I remembered the stories of what it was like for my other grandmother to experience a, a lynching in her hometown when she was 11 years old. And so I think it was out of a space of recognition and the uncovering moment for me was just exposing what generations of my family had always known had been at the heart of our democracy, which was this great sin of white supremacy um, and, and, and the and becomes really important to me that we were the product of those who survived. And as I reflect on this moment in American history, and when I reflect on the future children I hope to have, my hope is that, but it's by creating small spaces, like the ones that we've been able to do through the People's Supper, that perhaps, we can begin to imagine and realize what the, the promise of America could be. I was with uh, Ruby Sales, uh, a mentor of ours at Faith Matters Network. Great this civil week. rights civil elder. Civil rights elder who, yeah. you know, if you want to humble yourself, just spend some time with elders. <laughs> um, and she reminded me of a phrase that old black folks used to say to her when she was going through the civil rights movement, which is that you're in process. The implication being that none of us has quite arrived yet. And I think in America, we are in process. And we are at a really deep and important moment of uncovering that is ugly. And there is a choice before us. And the question is whether or not we will continue to be in process towards the the promise of what America could be Mm -hmm. or default into the worst of our instincts. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today at the Chautauqua Institution with Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Lennon Flowers. wisdom that the two of you have from the from your families and and from you know the work focusing on grieving focusing on pain and loss and this corresponds with what we're learning in brain science is that that when we begin act we humans begin are reduced to pain, to our pain and our loss and our fear, we, we cannot be our best selves. And I, and I feel like that's not the only thing that needs to be attended to, but it is something. That, and that's kind of what you're, you're creating, these literally nourishing spaces <laughs> around the table, which doesn't now surprise any of us, <laughs> um, for people to bring their humanity whoever they voted for, whatever their identity is on the spectrum of all of our divisions. 
Tell, tell us what that's been like, like what you've experienced. Hard. Hard, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I say that, like, not flippantly, but I no. think it has been, um, you know, I will self-identify as someone who identifies as part of the political left who is embedded and nourished by communities working and striving towards social justice. And one of the first instincts that I think a lot of my peers had post-election was to gear up for the fight. Right. And I think for many, many reasons, that was the right decision for some of them. And what I remembered in this time where um, so many of us were sort of throwing accusations at one another was a really distinct memory. I was 14 years old. My mom had just gone into the hospital for the first time after her cancer diagnosis. And I was sitting um, at a kitchen table. It was my birthday. And I heard a knock on the door. And it was Erin Charrington, who is the mother of one of my best childhood friends. And she brought me a birthday cake. Now, Ms. Charrington is a conservative Catholic woman. Um, I don't know how she voted last election, but I can guarantee you that in the elections before that, we probably did not vote the same way. Mm -hmm. And for me, that memory of this connection with somebody who was part of a mothering community for me growing up, who had a very different political ideology than I did, was the thing that called me back. Called me back from the the ease of cynicism, of accusation, um, and reminded me of the deep humanity that still existed in what I might call my political foe, right? Yeah. Um, and so translating that story and sharing that with some folks for whom, and this is something Lynn and I've talked about quite a bit as a lesson from the People's Supper, is sometimes it's unethical to ask certain people to bridge. Some people aren't ready to bridge right. yet. Right. Um, particularly those who ha inhabit particular marginalized identities that are yeah. under attack yeah, in this season. Yeah, people who are literally in danger should not be asked to be bridge people. Exactly. Yeah. But some of us, as but you say, those can us, be brave. Yeah, and yeah. but for those of us who are called to that type of work, yeah. which is not everybody, Yeah. but for those of us who are, I feel a particularly deep responsibility to yeah. step into that space um, and be what I think any good preacher is, which is a translator, right? Mm -hmm. To be able mm -hmm. to, to use the words of, of faith in some cases and others to begin knitting together um, a little bit more of that fabric that I think is so important um, to what the American project is. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about um, some of the vocabulary and the practices that have emerged through what you've done. Some of it emerged in your separate, you know, in the dinner party or in Faith Matters and have found their way into people's separate. But I feel like they're so instructive and nourishing, actually, to hear about. So, um, Lennon, um, you have this notion in the dinner party that we talk a lot about self-care and that there's also a need for collective care. Um, 
that we might live better, bolder, and more connected lives. So talk about what that distinction is for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think self-care, I think one of the things that we forget about self-care um, is that it doesn't work in isolation, right? And we live in a time of endemic loneliness, right? And that part of what tethers us, you know, to life on earth and makes it great are the people we care about and the people who care for us, right? When you look at kind of, um, there's a study recently that um, millennials and Gen Z are um, one of the loneliest demographic groups, you know, lonely, have higher loneliness scores than um, people ages 72 and older. But when you actually look at what is driving that, social media wasn't what was predictive. Um, people who spent a lot of time online had, you know, the same loneliness rates as people who spent less of it. What was actually predictive was the presence of in real life conversation and connection, the relationships in your life. Um, but relationships, I think, like, let's make no mistake, relationships aren't a thing that can be compelled either. Um, and they so can what be are, what? They cannot be compelled. Right. Right? And so what are the conditions that invite that? And part of that answer is time. Is time. That's right. I mean, you, I think what makes all of this possible and bearable for the two of you is very countercultural to the way American society has functioned for a long time, where time is money and you do things quickly and you get them resolved and you move on and you have an action plan or you take a vote and you move on. And I think I see this in your generation is a long reality-based sense of how long social change takes. I mean, I feel like, you know, Jen, I've heard you, I feel like you are really picking up this language of Martin Luther King Jr. of the long arc of the moral universe? Yeah, one thing, um, our mantra, a mantra we have at the People's Supper is always that, you know, um, relationships move at the speed of trust, but social change moves at the speed of relationships. And, whew, what a relief. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that, yeah. And you know, did Stephen Covey, he started so this that, is interesting, because yeah. Stephen Covey had this language of the speed of trust. Right. But it was, there, it was very much about productivity and getting things done, right? And you're picking that up and just shifting it. Say it again. It's, so it's relationships move at the speed of trust. Social change moves at the speed of relationships. Right. There's been no movement for justice or equity in this country that didn't start with relationship. It doesn't happen singularly. Yeah. And so as I think about this work of social change that we're undertaking, um, the transformative practice of trying to build the America that we want to see, it's a generational project. Yeah. And thank God that I believe in a faith tradition that, you know, my time currency is eternities, not... <laughs> Not election cycles. Yeah. Right. <laughs> After a short break, more with Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Lennon Flowers. We are thrilled to be hosting the beautiful People's Supper's resources they've created for you to download and use. Go to civilconversationsproject.org. There you'll also find this and other conversations together with On Being's Better Conversations Starter Guide and Grounding Virtues. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. 
helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with millennial wise women, the Reverend Jen Bailey of the Faith Matters Network and Lennon Flowers of the Dinner Party. Together, they've made over 1,500 people's suppers happen across the political chasms of the last few years. We spoke together as part of the 2019 summer season of the Chautauqua Institution in its historic outdoor amphitheater. The reason I think, you know, what you've been doing, and you too, is actually more relevant than every bit of political punditry, is that there's something about this advanced age we're in that politics has just now, and, and the economy, have become this thin veneer over the human drama, over these questions of what it means to be human and how we want to live, over the drama of pain and fear and dreams and hope. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have forgotten that we can be each other's medicine, right? And I think, you know, the People's Supper, I think I began that work with profound levels of naivety in a thousand different ways. But one of them was the presumption, you know, our work began as a hundred-day project, which we thought was like eternal time in Twitter (laughs) time. So, yes, we are capable of long games and also sometimes, like, you know, can speak the length of a tweet, and, you know, and our intention there was to gather, you know, 100 dinners over 100 days. And we did that, and we did a lot more than that, and there was a, a continuing appetite to keep gathering. But one of the things that we had found in that was actually a lot of really problematic motivations, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think part In of yourselves my, or just all over the place? Oh, both and. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think what I had failed to appreciate in that was that there's a lot of work. I had to interrogate my own whiteness, right? It is easy, I think we we, uh, draw a lot of attention to this political moment and point fingers, um, you know, at the uh, white supremacist who uh, just shot up at Walmart in El Paso, right? And And the collective grief experience that attends that. But I think one of the things that we noticed was, you know, early on, we heard from a lot of, you know, white progressives. A col- an old colleague of ours coined a term for white women who like to hike, <laughs> WWWLTH, and hi, I'm a white woman who enjoys hiking. Um, but it was what people were looking for was a moment to match the um, optics of their lives with the values they profess to hold and their voting patterns every four years. So they wanted to sit down with a token person of color, a token immigrant, preferably undocumented. They wanted to have a moment um, to, you know, elevate or bend their eyebrows in kind of a pity face and to show that they were every bit as compassionate as they thought they were. They wanted to sit down with a Trump supporter and prove that they were morally and intellectually superior. They wanted to take a selfie at the end of the night and they wanted to be done. And that isn't the way that social change works. That is not the conditions of relationships.
Yeah, I think the great question of the 21st century is the question of how, how we be together, right? And I use the, that language intentionally in the, the African-American vernacular English, right? <laughs> like, how we be. And for me, it's about not just how we be in terms of our personhood, but how we, how we do this American project together, because we've never actually been successful at it yet. And so the aspiration to live in a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy is an aspiration. And God, what a project to pursue. Yeah. But if we don't get it right in these small ways, in building those relationships of trust over time, recognizing the historical and real modern day reasons why there are these deep ruptures, you know, I think about... Um, when we talk about white supremacy in this country or white nationalism, it's not hypothetical for me. About two months after the Charlottesville incident, an hour south of my house, there was a rally of many of the worst groups that were there. And for me, when I hear people chant stuff like blood and soil and Jews will not replace us, I think about my future children as someone who is an African-American living in the South, married to a practicing Jew. Our future kids are the embodiment of everything these people profess to hate. And so it, it, it's real. There are real lived consequences for people worshiping what I think of as the God of white supremacy. For me, white supremacy is not an ideology, but a theology. And what is required of it is both the blood sacrifice of black and brown bodies and for white folks to give up a true part of themselves in the process, to forget their histories. So when I think about, Lennon, you are mentioning grieving practices earlier, I actually do think we have some ancestral ways of knowing how to grieve. It's why black funerals take about five to eight hours, right? Right, um, right. It's why, you know, when I, I think about my friends who live in Ireland and other places, right? There are these rituals and practices that we know but we've forgotten. And in fact, for many people, they've been asked to give up to assimilate into a vision of whiteness that erases the particularity of their story. And what an act of violence that is as well. I think, you know, I think also just, you know, the dinner party, the supper, the shared supper, the hospitality to strangers, whether you voted the same way or not, I mean, that's never what hospitality was about. It's about inviting people to bring their best selves into the room. Here's some language about, um, I think this is language from the, from the uh, People's Suppers. Um, While people share their stories and bear their scars, the group has a responsibility to elevate and hear their stories. Um, you talk about this as being brave space. Brave space works to create a space that is supporting healing and nurturing to all involved. That image that we get from that language is so contradicts what happens in too many of our most highly publicized political and public spaces now. But it is this ancient technology of gathering around the table and breaking bread together. Yeah, this question of bringing people to the table when all you, yeah, folks want to fight right now. Um, I go back to the language of invitation, right? Which is different than demand. 
And so I think one of the things that we've been really intentional about in the methodology of the People's Supper in particular is that we don't lead with questions around your political identity or what you think about um, headline X, Y, or Z. What we begin with is the question of telling your story. You know, so our bridging suppers that we've used to bridge across lines of political difference start with the question, Describe a moment, recent or long since past, when you felt isolated, alone, or unwelcomed. And what that does is begin to let people settle in mm -hmm. to a shared experience, because we've all had an experience of that, yeah. um, rather than going up. Because once you start talking politics, people's guards immediately right. shift, and they go into fight mode and right. not a mode, mode of invitation. Yeah. I think that um, meals also create kind of a rhythm in a conversation, you know, and I think some of the stupidest things that we say are because we're trying to fill silence, right, um, or we're trying to cover, and so instead, the ability, um, you know, when you're actually giving thought to what is really true for you, the ability to pick up a fork or a glass, you know, to take pauses, right, that don't feel awkward. And I think, you know, one of the things that we try to um, instruct everyone in is the difference between, um, you know, embracing silence as a gift versus being silenced. Um, and there are a lot of ways in which we can silence each other, but silence itself is not at all the enemy in conversation. I think that there's a familiarity to a meal, um, you know, because we all got to eat. Um, and our food does tell the stories of where we come from. Um, but it also, you know, we encourage hosts, particularly for like larger events in um, congregational spaces or civic spaces, um, you know, to use the moment of dessert as actually a cue that like things are going to start to wind down now. And because, and that way you don't actually have to have a, you know, a phone or a watch, you know, and like looking down, right? Um, but a host can know that in about 15 minutes, we're going to start to like bring the conversation in. Um, and I think that allows us to be really present with one another. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today at the Chautauqua Institution with Lennon Flowers and Reverend Jennifer Bailey. I want to talk about um, the notion of accompaniment, which we've been, we've been talking about, but it's an important word for you, I think, somewhere... You said that this is the most sacred element of your work. You know, Jen, um, in that piece you wrote for us after the election, you quoted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying, where do we go from here, chaos or community? That was his question. And you said, I choose community. The community I long for will not be found in shallow platitudes promoting reconciliation. It will require the courage of everyday heroes to dig deep and find within themselves the wherewithal to lean into one another and repair the breach of relationships this election has exposed. So we've been talking about bringing people together, but eating together, but I want you to talk, just talk about all the nuance for, for the two of you, that this word, that, that accompanying each other holds um, for this age we inhabit together. 
Yeah, there's a quote I love that says, we are each other's business. Um, and for me, I'm very aware of the urgency of now. There is a climate crisis that is afoot. There is a crisis at, um, on our borders and the creation of borders between us. And I know that the only way that I know to get through that is to be walking alongside one another in that journey through the, the valleys and the mountaintops. And that means not giving up on each other, not casting one another aside, but inviting us um, into deeperness. <laughs> if that's a word, I don't know if that's a word. Um, <laughs> but I, I think about these moments of reckoning, right, that are upon us. And for me, our narratives of reckoning are incomplete without pathways for redemption um, that hold us to account for some of the, the awfulness and the messiness, but also allows ways for us to reintegrate people into community. Because it's when we start to cast each other aside, when we don't do the work of walking alongside and being with one another through through the shit, if I can say that, I'm sorry, that's reverend, that's not very reverently language, but but that's where you like start to foster community. And I think one of the great gifts of still being embedded in a church community is that I'm still an intergenerational space with folks. Um, before I left Nashville yesterday, I was in my church kitchen, so many connections to church kitchens, yeah. um, with Miss Hazel. And she was sharing with me as we were reflecting on um, the events in El Paso and in Dayton, and I told her, my heart is broken, and I'm happy my heart is broken because I was afraid that I'd become too complacent. And she began to share with me the experience of growing up in the 1940s and 50s and 60s in Nashville, Tennessee, and her resilience, right? That word becomes important to me. And that that resilience of being able to get, get through when when the Klan burned a cross on her front yard because her brothers integrated the local elementary school, that it was with each other that they were able to get through. And so for me, that's why accompaniment and this word is so important is because it's only in community that my people have gotten through. And I think it's the only way that we're gonna get through. Yeah, Yeah, I I think we've really outsourced the role of being human to experts and professionals. Um, And really, what does it look like to reclaim our humanity and to recognize that, you know, I think sometimes it's, it isn't, um, you know, I think about growing up in like the, you know, post-racial 90s of America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much of um, what wasn't talked about um, as it related to race and racism and whiteness Um, And some of that wasn't always um, the product of overt racism, right, and denial. Um, It was, or, you know, the equivalent of Holocaust denial. Um, It was discomfort, right? Um, And I think recognizing that safe spaces, and this is back to the language of brave space that has um, been so, you know, formative, um, is that we don't need to confuse safe spaces with comfortable spaces. And we don't have to understand everything about each other in order to be present with one another. I think that we like have mistaken empathy, you know, as walking um, in someone else's shoes. Let us be clear: you can't. 
um, because that person lived a lifetime in their shoes. Um, but what we can do is witness and accompany. I think in, you know, you're, you're actually pushing against some of the instincts of your generation also in, in working with the language of safe space in that way. And I can imagine that this is kind of controversial. And I think it's really important because you're, you're I mean, I, I also like clearly, you know, this is, you know, me walking into this dangerous territory, but clearly, you know, that language of safety and lack of safety has its meaning. But I agree with you that sometimes it's being confused with being uncomfortable and then it becomes something that in a, in a weird way is dehumanizing for everybody. In the words of our colleague Mickey, she, there's a part in the poem that she wrote, An Invitation to Brave Space, which has been the one document that has anchored every single People's Supper, which is, we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. And we will not be perfect. And I think one of the things that is so true about the work that we've been up to, but I think this moment, is that we expect people to come out fully formed. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, if we're going to do the work of what it means to grow into being fully human, to grow into the promise of America, to grow into, to be in process, yeah. then we have to be teachable, we have to be moldable, we have to be willing to engage one another and be wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. And there has been such a, a culture, um, and I think it comes from a good instinct to want to protect, yeah. um, to want to, and I know in my community, it's, it's been silence around particular racialized traumas that people have experienced in previous generations, and what, what my aunties and them didn't say, right? And they did that out of a desire to protect me, from the harsh realities of what it meant for them to grow up when they grew up and where they grew up in the South. And, and it still is live, right? And so I think there is a, there's a generational conversation to be had cross generations about the fine line between what it means to, to protect and what it means to tell the truth and hold one another in truth well. Mm -hmm. to accompany one another mm -hmm. in the telling of truth well. And all in, with, in reality, in all its complexity, the world as it is and not as we wish it to be. Exactly, exactly. Um, I do want to throw in here that part of accompaniment is insisting on joy and refreshment and resilience and that one thing accompaniment is about is understanding that on any given day, it may be too much for you or me to ask, to carry, even to be hopeful. And so on those days, you have somebody else who can carry that for you. I mean, and, and I feel like joy is also strangely countercultural right now. Like everybody's I don't very... want a revolution if I can't dance, y'all, right? Like, there's a reason why... Uh... I hold scripture in one hand and Beyonce lyrics in the other, right? <laughs> like, that there is joy to be found in, um, 
in the silly moments, in the quiet moments, in the moments that, um, yeah, I agree with you that joy seems countercultural, but like, what is more revolutionary than declaring that there are things that are worthy of our laughter, that there are things that are worthy of celebrating at a time where everything seems so dark and dim? Like, I, I, I live my life in color, not in black and white. <laughs> and, and so, um, And that's another thing that we've always known. There's a reason why the elders of the movement, the civil rights movement, were singing songs, right? Yeah. There are reasons why they're cooking together um, and just being together. And so much of that relationship, that trust is built over um, late night bottles of wine on front porches. <laughs> and, right. Um, Right, and that's all, this is also not an either or, it's both and. It's a both and. Uh -huh. Like, we get to live full lives. And when we stop living full lives, we give ourselves over to hopelessness. And I belong to a faith tradition that is all about revolutionary hope and always uh, orients itself towards a notion of resurrection, right? Not resurrection that is born of... Um, platitudes, but of like a deep reckoning with sorrow and death, and that we imagine something different, that we can begin to live into something different. That's the, the fancy term I learned in seminary, the eschatological hope, right? Like that is, that is the vision of what might be. And man, if that Jesus guy for me didn't live that example, he was drinking too and sharing tables all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is what humans have been doing with each other, right? That sharing joy and sorrow with the people that we love, you know, and recognizing, um, you know, the first time somebody shows up to a, a dinner party, um, you know, it's the ability, I think we like obscure our pain and our suffering with platitudes and empty words and trying to, um, you know, find the rainbow at the end of, you know, unfixable realities. But the thing that keeps people coming back over time um, is you have to have moments of joy and laughter um, and vitality, right? right? That is like the bread upon which our friendships and our lives are built. And it is space in which to be and hold all of it. I want to close. I want to ask you all to read the full, this invitation to Brave Space, this poem that is so central. You just read the first few lines. And um, we had a printer crisis at the place I'm staying just before I came over, so I was unable to print this out. But luckily, I have this beautiful invention, the iPhone. So um, why don't I give it to you, Lennon, and you just read the first half and then pass it to your friend. An Invitation to Brave Space by Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Together, we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. 
We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. Thank you, Reverend Jen Bailey Thank and Lennon you. Flowers. <laughs> it's, it's great to see the future looking like this, isn't it? <laughs> Scott Bay Jones, who wrote the Invitation to Brave Space poem, is the director of Healing Justice at the Faith Matters Network, the organization Reverend Jen Bailey founded and leads. Faith Matters joined with Hollaback and the Dinner Party to create the People's Suppers. And Lennon Flowers is co-founder and executive director of the Dinner Party. You can find out more about the wonderful work of The Dinner Party at thedinnerparty.org and about Faith Matters Network at faithmattersnetwork.org. And again, we're making available the beautiful People's Suppers resources they created at civilconversationsproject.org. There you can also listen to this again and find On Being's Better Conversations Starter Guide and Grounding Virtues. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. Special thanks this week to Michael Hill, Matt Ewalt, Emily Carpenter, Rachel Borzileri, and the Chautauqua Institution. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.